I'm Hemant Mehta. This is Jessica Blumke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. Jessica recently attended the Amazing Meeting, a skeptics conference in Las Vegas, where she had the chance to talk to a number of amazing people. For this episode, I sat down with uh, philosopher and writer Daniel Dennett, and we spoke about the term atheist and its alternatives, his latest project called Caught in the Pulpit, which is about preachers who no longer believe in what they preach, and the culture of Americans who prefer to stay put as opposed to travel around the country or world. Welcome to the Friendly Atheist Podcast. This is Jessica Blumke. I'm sitting here today with Dan Dennett. Um, I would like to give your credentials. Well, I'm a professor at Tufts. I've written a lot of books, including Breaking the Spell, and more recently on this topic uh, with Linda Lascola. We've published a book called Caught in the Pulpit, Leaving Belief Behind, about her wonderful confidential interviews with closeted, non-believing clergy, clergy who still have churches, congregations, they're still in the ministry, but they no longer believe what their congregations expect them to believe. And they're very interesting people. It's a very moving story, actually. Um, and I think a lot of our listeners will probably recognize you as one of the uh, four horsemen of the atheist well, movement. So-called. Yes. <laughs> Do you like that term? I don't mind. Um, I'm glad to be a part of it. There's, I think there's other atheists who, who wish they were in the charmed circle and uh, <laughs> uh, probably deserve just as much or more than I do, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm proud to be one of them. Um, so I, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, just kind of the term atheist. I, uh, last night, you know, we are here at TAM, which I did not say in the intro, we're here at uh, TAM 2014. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been trying to find people to come on the podcast. And actually last night, I approached a couple of people who are fairly prominent that a lot of people recognize their name, both of whom declined saying they didn't want to be associated with the name, the term atheist. Oh, really? Well, okay. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts? Has that been something that... Well, you know, I was the American uh, spokesperson, not the, the coiner, but the American spokesperson mm-hmm. for the term bright mm-hmm. um, uh, that was coined by two retired California school teachers, science teachers, uh, as a better term for humanist, atheist, freethinker, uh, uh, agnostic for mm-hmm. that matter and they reasoned I thought quite compellingly that uh, the term ho- uh, homosexual is a very bad uh, has very many, many bad connotations and gay was a brilliant political stroke uh-huh. uh, it was a term that already had a meaning and a very positive meaning and it was simply hijacked Right. and so they said let's hijack the term bright for us and uh, uh, it didn't catch on. Actually, the Brights <laughs> movement is still going and going strong. They have lots of members all over the world, mm-hmm. but it has not become, uh, uh, it has not spread, it hasn't gone viral. Uh, the number of people who will call themselves Brights is in the tens, maybe hundreds of thousands, but not millions. Uh-huh. Um, the idea that the term atheist has a lot of bad connotations. For obvious reasons, largely because the theist community keeps it that way. Um, uh, I myself have no hesitation to say I'm an atheist, Mm -hmm. uh, and I would rather take the take the sting off the term and say, "Oh, of course I'm an atheist." 
Aren't you? <laughs> right. Do you think people who are an atheist and who have who have the ability to say they're an atheist without persecution or fear of risk of harm, do you think those people have a responsibility to make kind of soften the blow for those who maybe live in a part of the world that... I think something like that, yes. I think that if you do a few experiments <laughs> by simply... If you're one of those atheists who just keeps it to yourself, mm -hmm. do a few experiments and find half a dozen times in the next month when you just casually let it drop that you're an atheist, don't make a big deal of it, don't mm -hmm. proselytize, just you know, oh, atheists like me don't, and see what effect it has mm -hmm. um, I found that people A they, they, they respect it and, and if they themselves are one of you, and they very often are, they're thrilled yeah I say, oh, me too, yeah. me too. And mm -hmm. I think that, I think atheists have no idea what their numbers are. And non-atheists have no idea. They don't realize how many of their acquaintances, some of your best friends are atheists. <laughs> your doctor may be an atheist. Your children's teachers may be atheists. You know, the nice policeman down the corner, he may be an atheist. <laughs> and it's, it's good for people to realize that. Yeah. Um, do you think, so obviously we're sort of shifting, there's clearly more people who either self-identify as an atheist or simply fail to identify as any, mm -hmm. um, you know, any particular religion. Do you, do you think, how far do you think that's going to slide? Do you think we're going to get to a majority point at some day? In well, we have some good examples. Europe mm -hmm. has already tipped over that uh, mark quite easily. And they wonder why it's taking us so long. Right. Um, I think the the level of animosity against atheists in this country is still so high that it, it'll take a while. Um, people say, hey, um, uh, how long do you think before we have an atheist president? I say, oh, you've had lots of atheist presidents. Mm -hmm. They just haven't been willing to admit it. Because right. <laughs> then they wouldn't have been president. But um, I, I think the day of a, of a self-avowed atheist president I hope to live to see that day. Yeah. Uh, and once that happens, the dam will have broken. Mm -hmm. Do you think um, the strengthening of the atheist, atheist movement has also kind of served to galvanize the more religious who, I don't know, feel threatened by, by our Well, they certainly do feel threatened, but they were already galvanized. Yeah. And we're just, we're just the latest wave in the tidal wave of... of Difficulties that they're having. I think they're all running desperately now. Well, what is it about the UN? Like you mentioned, Europe is becoming more and more secular. You know, it's, and, and despite the fact that some you know places like England have a national a national religion, whereas the U.S. doesn't. But well, some people think that having a, a state religion is actually uh, the royal road to atheism. Uh -huh. uh, Rodney Stark and his colleagues argue that. Um, uh, the sure way to kill religion is to nationalize it, <laughs> because then it becomes a sort of civil service job, and mm -hmm. it's filled with people who, who uh, this is a very uh, sort of right-wing economic view that says free market right. for religion uh, keeps the keeps the religions on their toes and uh, fosters competition. Now, I, there's probably something to what he says. I'm not I'm not convinced that he's right, but. 
I'm sure there's these partly right. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of it um, has to do with the still remarkable isolation of a lot of Americans. If you simply see which Americans have passports and which don't, mm. and see and look at their views, their religious and political views, there's a striking, very significant difference. Uh -huh. There are all these people that they don't ever want to leave the United States, the best place in the world, and they'd be shocked if they went to Europe and saw how much nicer and cleaner and more modern many of the facilities are in other places and realize that America is beginning to look a little threadbare. That would shock them, uh -huh. but it probably wouldn't shock them out of their religious beliefs. Sure. Well, do you think the, the idea that a lot of American, and I don't pretend to know the number off my head, but a, a large number of Americans don't hold passports, do you think that's just sort of because of our physical isolation, you know, obviously at Canada and Mexico, but other than that, if you want to travel internationally, it's a six-hour flight and it's not cheap. Well, yeah, I think that has something to do with it, of course. And it's also a matter of, of local traditions. Mm. Um, after all, uh, most people until the 20th century uh, only moved sort of five or ten miles from the point of their birth to the point of their death. Mm -hmm. the, the circle you could circumscribe around the lifetime travels of most people was pretty small. And that only changed with the modern transportation era, and again, only for a minority of people. Mm -hmm. um, I had a dear neighbor, now deceased in Maine, who uh, I asked him what traveling he'd ever done. He said he went to New Hampshire once. <laughs> it was a it was a dog show. He went to <laughs> entered his dog in a hunting dog show in New Hampshire. And aside from that, he'd never been out of the state of Maine his whole life. Didn't see any reason to. Well, yeah. actually, I lived in Montana for a little bit in a very small town, populated yeah. by hundred yeah. or so, and I met people who had never left the state. Yeah. And it was and Montana's great. I don't want to yeah, dig on it, but place. it. It's it's really interesting that people just don't have that desire to see something different. Uh, and I don't now. think we know. I don't think we know the effects. Obviously, many and multiple and competing mm -hmm. that the modern media have on this. Maybe you spend your whole life in Montana, but but if you're watching uh, James Bond movies and and television programs. Um, you're going to see other parts of the world and think you know them. That's an interesting point. Uh, and the need to travel may be actually diminished. So why do I want to go to Paris? I've seen it in the movies. I've <laughs> seen it. On, I've seen London in all kinds of movies, uh, and they think they know. And there's fear. Sure. It's they don't know stupid. if. I think the first time somebody goes abroad, there's a little anxiety. There's a threshold of anxiety. Well, there's language barriers, yeah. which is intimidating. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Um, I just think that's an interesting concept, because in my head, I think oh, I saw a movie about Paris. Like, well, we should go visit Paris. But you think it's, you know, I've seen it. I've got what I need to get out of it. Yeah. I saw I that one exactly. French movie that one time. Yeah. <laughs> and, hmm. Yeah, I saw that French movie, and they... They were shooting at each other. <laughs> it doesn't seem safe to me. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, So let's talk about 
kind of the revisionist history that's been going on lately regarding just sort of the founding of America and um, you know obviously they the founders made a point to say we don't want to state religion but it's people find it so easy to go back and look at what was written and reread it in their their own kind of voice yes there's a lot of I think rather desperate Mm -hmm. attempts to rewrite history Mm -hmm. it's pretty clear Right. That the founding fathers were quite secular and wanted it that way. And the special pleading on behalf of other views is, I think, pathetic. Do you think, you know, in there's the one phrase endowed by their creator, do you think that's something they kind of grab onto with both hands? Of, no, well, yeah. you know, that was pre Darwin. Sure. So. That kind of language mm-hmm. flowed off the tongue in those days quite naturally. Well, that makes sense. And uh, I think that nothing much should be read into that. What's it, what is it about religion that breeds mistrust in science? Or kind of a selective mistrust in science, I guess. Because they're more than willing to use the internet or their car. Not only do they use the technology, but they, they, they would love to use science when they think it can help them. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, uh, when... When the Vatican goes to scientists and asks them to study the Shroud of Turin, that's actually a very interesting historical event. It's it's right there. Right. It shows. You know what it shows? To be impolite about it, it shows who's in power now. You would never see National Academy of Sciences going to the Vatican and saying, "Would you validate this result in molecular biology?" <laughs> Are you kidding? joke. But the Vatican knows the power of science. Everybody knows the power of science. Mm -hmm. And obviously if you're a a spokesperson for religion that used to be the go-to authority on everything and is no longer the go-to authority, Mm -hmm. you feel displaced and uh, you're now uh, uneasily in second or maybe third place. And naturally, that breeds resentment. And uh, I think a lot of the liberal uh, thinkers in, let's just look at Christianity, Mm -hmm. um, have made their peace with science. And some of them are uh, are now go out of their way to be quite gracefully ecumenical and in tune with science, and they acknowledge science as well. Uh, But I think that's, that's been a... It's been a hard card to play for many of them, and they've played it gracefully and, and well, but just look at all the ones that won't play it. Mm-hmm. Um, so talking about your most recent book, I'm sorry, what was the title about um, clergy? Uh, Caught in the Pulpit. Do the people who are kind of find themselves in that position of, I know I'm no longer a believer, but this is my job, this is my livelihood, do they feel like they're, they're being dishonest to their those who follow them, or what What do you think is the mindset there? Oh, it's, it varies, but yes, so they all um, they all are bothered from somewhere from discomfited to in agony mm-hmm. and the spectrum is spread mm-hmm. over the amount of dissembling that they are obliged to do. Now, you've got to recognize that Everybody who deals 
let's say pastorally with other human beings mm-hmm. engages in a lot of diplomacy a lot of politeness we don't say things to people that we think will undermine them or hurt them right. and so we do engage in a lot of diplomatic talk which seamlessly melds into hypocrisy and outright lying mm-hmm. and there's no bright line anywhere on that scale and so you can start off being just quiet about your own views and giving metaphorical interpretations of things you say mm-hmm. and excusing what you're saying because I'm talking to a a, a, a sweet little old lady who's going to die in a year or so anyway and I don't want to disturb her so I'll tell this little white lie and that happens to clergy it happens to all of us mm-hmm. but it happens to them every day mm-hmm. and it mounts and mounts and mounts and there comes a time when they realize they're just living a lie yeah. always with the best of intentions mm-hmm. I don't think any... Look, none of these people went into it for the money right. or for the power or the glory. They went into it to serve their fellow human beings, mm-hmm. to do good. And then they get trapped. And it's very sad. Mm-hmm. Some of them, incidentally, don't feel particularly trapped. Really? And I don't know how I feel about them. In a few cases, I'm not... Um, I'm not all that uh, respectful or sympathetic. I think some of them find the the life they lead a little too graceful, a little too easy. It would bother me a lot more than it bothers them. So is it they started religious, became pastors, lost their faith, and are staying purposely? Or well, they, they were well, never... Well, um, some of them wouldn't leave even if they could because... They, it's what they do. It's mm-hmm. their life, and uh, some of them wouldn't leave because they can't bear to break all the hearts and the promises that they've made. And mm-hmm. When you've married and buried and baptized families and con- had them confide in you for years, very hard to say. Yeah, I never believed a word of it. Yeah. Very hard to do. So, so their um, their motives for staying are even when they are economic, which to some degree they are, are usually I think you know it's hard to fault them. I mean, they don't have any equity in a house; they're living in a parsonage. They they got you know they got two kids that have to go to college. It's oh my gosh! Well, and they stand to lose every friend they have. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a the leap from the pulpit is a mortal leap indeed and they few of them are up for it and do they do they take comfort in finding others who are in the same position or is that somehow oh yes yeah and um an offshoot of our interviews was the creation of the clergy project right. we didn't create it although we helped mm-hmm. linda and i and Linda's helped more than I have, but I had discussed this sort of thing with Richard Dawkins in the past, mm-hmm. and 
when I suggested it to him, he and the foundation, the Richard Dawkins Foundation, came through with the initial technical expertise to set up their website mm-hmm. and some support money. And then, but but Richard and I and Linda, uh, have, we're not members. We can't. We have no access to what they do. It's completely closed. Sure. It's just for them, and they're very careful about who they let in. And they have hundreds of members. Hundreds. What's the process like? How do you prove that? How do you, you prove get vetted? That? You you get in touch with them. You apply, uh-huh. and you get grilled, and. You get checked out. They 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 don't want snoopy journalists or would be converters or other other dissemblers in their midst, and so they they have. I don't know the details. All I know is that they. I know that that's a bottleneck. Uh-huh. That their membership is growing and growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what it is now. I haven't had it. They send me messages every now and then. Mm-hmm. Last message I got, it was over, I think, 550, but it must be considerably more than that. Now, but it takes a while to uh, uh, process a new candidate. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure. And is the ultimate goal to, what, provide community, provide them with the skills they may need? To, to provide on? them with just emotional support and moral support and a friendly ear and knowledgeable responses, mm-hmm. a simply sympathetic ear to listen and share notes and mm-hmm. and suggestions and there's been some people that have found work sure. outside and there's people that have found all kinds of uh, uh, opportunities within it. Uh, I, I don't know any of the details but it seems to be um, uh, it seems to be thriving. Mm-hmm. Do you have any specific thoughts about um, things like Sunday morning assemblies for secular people who want to gather and be yeah. part of the community? It's gotten some kind of vitriol from from sort of within the atheist community, and so much that you're mimicking church, and that to them is it. Yeah, well, well, yeah, I I understand that, but I'm not sympathetic to that vitriol at all. I think. Um, some people love music and ceremony mm-hmm. and they love the old songs mm-hmm. and maybe they love the smell of incense <laughs> and if they treat it as a kind of theater mm-hmm. I think that's fine in fact I got a lot of vitriolic response to a suggestion that I made that wouldn't it be great if a community theater set up a program of very carefully, accurately, uh, faithfully mm-hmm. uh, reproducing religious ceremonies. Different one every Sunday. It's a it's a Catholic Latin Mass this Sunday. Next week it's a it's a Quaker meeting, and the week after that <laughs> it's it's a, an Evangelical tent meeting, and the week after that we're going to have a Mormon meeting and snake handling. <laughs> uh, right, right, and. And you treat it as like going to the opera. Oh, isn't that interesting? And uh, and I thought what would be really cool is if you know the the one of the local pastors uh, moonlighted by you know the local Baptist pastor who also plays a Baptist pastor <laughs> when they do the Baptist pastor ceremony, oh. uh, uh, and then he could. 
he or she could say to a member of the congregation, oh, um, you can't come next Sunday. Well, maybe you'd like to come the following Sunday when I'm when I'm doing basically the same service uh, in the uh, 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 the, the church. theater church. Yeah. Um, and people could enjoy their their love of the music and the ceremony, and they could pass they could pass the plate and make the theater go. Uh, I think I think. <laughs> For one thing, I just think it would be nice if there were some uh, alternatives like that out there to, as it were, confuse the opposition. It's a little bit of chaff, making it a little bit harder to, uh, a little bit easier for people to move between communities and uh-huh. put less stress. The main reason I thought of this is I thought it would be valuable if churches could gently move to a position where the presumption that the those presiding over the service were believers was diminished. Mm-hmm. I mean, we take actors seriously, but we don't suppose they believe what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And if we treated them more as professional masters of ceremony <laughs> and and subtracted the idea that they were supposed to be devout that would go a long way to easing the burden on these folks. Do you think things like that would serve to help people transition? Because that's, that's what they're used to. They're used to getting up every Sunday morning and yeah, going I mean, to see I think, people. Um, I think it might. I know it, it's it's um, weak tea for some people. It's just sure. not, it's just, you know, it's, they don't drink near beer. It's got to be the real thing. <laughs> um, um, I'm I've given a couple of Unitarian sermons. Oh, yeah? Oh, yes. And I've, I've been to some Unitarian services. Um, that dates back to my high school days when my best friend was the organist at the local Unitarian church. Oh. I used to go to the services and hang out sitting on the bench on the organ. with. <laughs> he, was, he was a brilliant uh, organist. He uh-huh. made a life of it, in fact. And... Uh, so I know all about the Unitarians. And uh, I can't stand the words they put to the hymns. I love the hymns because mm-hmm. I grew up with them. But they put these tepid, bad bad poetry, bad lyrics. Mm-hmm. No, if I'm going to sing that hymn, I want the old blood-curdling words. Not, I don't believe them, but no. I want them. Oh, I feel I... In, the, in the same way... I wouldn't want to go here cosy fan tutte in English. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I I've, could understand the words better, but that's <laughs> not the point. I've, I've mentioned that before. I grew up singing in the choir and yeah. love it. Yeah. Love all the old religion, religious music and Latin. And it's beautiful and yeah. I love it. And I don't know why. It's not, it's just something you grow up with, I guess. Yeah. And there are a few things that are that old that are. It's important to realize that how much of uh, of the affection and allegiance, loyalty that people have to their churches is due to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the churches have, after all, been designed over several millennia to get their clutches into the hearts of the congregation, and for good reason. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and we can learn a lot from churches about how to instill community spirit joy and uh, break down the 
egotism of right. most of daily life. I, I think that's there's a lot to learn about that. And I think that's an, I find it interesting that people are so against mimicking churches because people do crave community. That's fundamental. That's what we all look for. That's why people come to places like this to town because they want to be surrounded by you know people they agree with. Look, we why do we have commencement services at universities? Right. You know why why do we have funerals, weddings, ceremonies? Good stuff. Rituals yeah. good. Um, it has a bracing and wonderful and supportive effect on people. Mm-hmm. Is it okay to not be skeptical about every single thing in your life? Is it okay to kind of take off that hat once in a while and say, like, I just like this song? Well, I think you can do it without, without believing. Mm-hmm. Um, Jonathan Miller, the great British orchestra c- conductor, opera director, scientist, TV presenter, polymath. He's a friend of mine. And I once went, he was doing the uh, St. Matthew Passion of Bach at BAM at Brooklyn Academy of Music. The most moving musical experience, maybe, of my life. Just absolutely thrilling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, the, 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 the music and the words, this is this is the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jonathan Miller, born a Jew, complete atheist, did that wonderful documentary on the history of atheism. Absolutely brilliant realization of this music. You couldn't do it any better. Didn't believe a word of it, but he loves it. Well, I mean, you know, you read Romeo and Juliet and you cry. You don't believe Romeo and Juliet were real people course, for a second. Yeah, and well, Yeah, I think people... Exactly. Absolutely can separate those two things. Uh, Well, we are just about at a half hour. Yeah, good good time to close up. Yeah, I think so. Um, Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. I look forward to seeing your your talk shortly. Yeah. Um, It will be shortly. Indeed. Uh, And uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, This is Jessica Blinky with the Friendly Atheist Podcast. You can find us at friendlyatheist.com. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. Our theme song was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. And thanks to Michael Greif for helping us with on-site recording. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blimke. We hope you join us next time.